The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. As you uh, sail through life, there are people who catch fish and fish who catch people. And what determines whether you're on the deck or in the belly is your response uh, to God's call. Our text this morning is uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to invite you to pull out a Bible, stand and read it together with me as we honor uh, God, who is the author of this text. That's Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You'll find it on page 752. Jonah's hard to find, only two pages, two sheets of paper in our uh, so if you go to Micah, you've gone too far towards the end of the Old Testament, back up, and you find Jonah, one of the twelve minor prophets. When we finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Let's listen carefully as we read together. You're reading God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Be seated. The lesson really in the book of Jonah is just like they say in click and clack, uh, don't drive like my brother. Uh, Don't listen to God like Jonah. Really, he's a foil. He's a foil against which we could look at someone like Saul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ, which was not just a call to faith, but as every call to faith is always also a call to service, to engage uh, with the world. And, and this is what Saul of Tarsus said as he became Paul, called by Jesus Christ to do great things in the world. He said, I want people to think of me this way. This is 1 Corinthians 4.1. He says, let people regard us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. I want to look at what that looks like in our life uh, this morning as we also hear the word of the Lord and his call to engage in the adventure of the life of faith. Uh, with Jesus. So let's, let's back up a second and look at Jonah, a little bit of background on, on Jonah, right? Because Jonah is this story that's a little hard to get our heads around. I mean, uh, my grandfather had a plaque on his kitchen uh, wall that said, all fishermen are liars except you and me, and I'm not so sure about you, right? <laughs> this is probably the greatest fish story of the whole Bible. And so we're going, wait a minute. Uh, there was a, a girl, apparently, who was flying on an airplane, and she was a little nervous about flying, pulled out her Bible for some comfort. And, uh, you know, the, uh, 
the kind of overly talkative atheist sitting next to her notices this, you know, this businessman. He says, you don't really read that book, do you? She says, yes, I do. It's God's word. Well, you don't believe everything that's in it. She says, oh, I do. How could you believe that part about Jonah? You know, he's swallowed up by a, a whale. How did that happen? She said, well, I really don't know. Uh, but I guess when I get to heaven, I can ask him. And he says, well, what if you don't see Jonah in heaven? She says, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> There's a lot in Jonah that, you know, we really struggle with, right? I mean, this, here's living three days inside of a great fish. Not a whale, by the way. It's great fish, if that helps. Uh, and it's... <clears throat> And then there's this city, Nineveh, you know, which is, this is the capital, this is the imperial capital of Assyria. Great, great empire. And we're supposed to believe that an Israelite prophet waltzes into town with a simple message, and there's a a massive repentance, including the king. I mean, Luther said the most remarkable thing about this book, and the thing that challenges credulity the most, is simply that a sermon could have so much impact. Uh, or then there's a story at the end, you know, of a plant that, that grows uh, very quickly, you know, it's sort of too fast. And so a lot of people have looked at this and said, this seems improbable. And so maybe it's not supposed to be read as literal, literal history. Maybe it's supposed to be read uh, as a kind of a, a parable. And, and I think uh, there's some reason to believe that. It's not typically the length of a parable. And parables usually have a, a really... Uh, a clear kind of setup and punchline, and not sure that that's here, but that's a one way to look at uh, Jonah as a parable. But if we look at the the genre, the kind of literature that Jonah is, it really stands out uniquely. Uh, it's here's the technical language: sensational, prophetic narrative. Now let me just unpack that very briefly. I said sensuous at the uh, first service, and I got a lot of interest. Uh, it's, it's a good book, but it's not that good. Let's start with the uh, um, the prophetic part, and that is that this you know Jonah is a prophet, and he actually lived. I mean that we know that Jonah was a historical figure. We see that in Second Kings fourteen twenty five, when mention is made of a man named Jonah, son of Amittai. This is the same guy, uh, and and he served in Israel, in northern Israel, as a prophet during the eighth century, the beginning of the eighth century, under the reign of Jeroboam the second. Uh, Jeroboam, this is going to be a quiz. Jeroboam lived between, uh, reigned between 793 and 753 BC. So the beginning of the 8th century, there's a prophet named Jonah. It's kind of a historical, uh, a connection to this book. And, but the thing is unusual about Jonah is normally prophets focus on the message that they speak. But Jonah is a book that focuses on the method and the messenger, right? On Jonah himself. It's a story of kind of non-compliance or the struggle that we have when God gives us a mission in life. It's also, uh, it has a realistic background uh, to it. It's kind of like many other historical narratives. So we call it a narrative. And what we find is that, yeah, not only is there a person named Jonah, but there's also a place named Nineveh. It's not far from uh, modern-day Mosul in Iraq, across the river there. And uh, it was a great city. And it was a wicked city. It was a city that uh, was very violent and oppressive as it overran uh, its neighbors. You say it's hard to believe that they would come to repentance with this figure Jonah coming into town. But uh, we do know that there was a lot going on that might have predisposed them to a new message in Nineveh at that time. Uh, They were suffering political and military setbacks. 
This would destabilize any ruler. There was a famine, so this crisis uh, that's felt throughout society there. And as well, two natural disasters, uh, or uh, an earthquake and, and a, um, an eclipse, which in that culture would have been seen as omens, and perhaps that the gods are, are not viewing us favorably. So when this Israelite comes, who knows? Uh, maybe there would be some kind of a short-term uh, reaction or response uh, to that. But finally, sensational, or sensuous, if you want, in that the imagery here is very vivid. This is a tightly constructed story that's designed to pull us in. It's very readable. Uh, it's, it's kind of an adventure that we relate to. So we see ourselves in Jonah's shoes, and we begin with a sense of, well, maybe I'm called like Jonah is called at the beginning of the book. And we find ourselves being interviewed by God at its end. And we'll see that God asks Jonah a series of hard questions. Those are meant for us. Well, the Apostle Paul says, this is the way I want to be seen. As a servant of Christ and as a steward of the mystery of God. The first, uh, a servant. What does that mean? Well, it really describes a relationship between us and God. We see here uh, the first of these two banners. Um, Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Really, it's the proclamation of the early church. It's the simplest creed that we have. Jesus is Lord. But it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because if I have a Lord, then immediately that has implications for my life as a kind of a, of a servant. And uh, Peter Berger has written a book, this commentator, about us today, and he calls it the, the heretical imperative. I like that phrase, the heretical imperative. It means is we're actually supposed to be heretics today. It didn't used to be that way, Peter Berger argues, but, you know, before the Enlightenment, uh, people had a respect for authority, and the church was one of the, the social authorities. And so if the church said, here's what you should believe and do, then people felt obligated to believe and do likewise, mostly, in general. But, but now we've come to a place where the Enlightenment has eroded our sense of trust in authority. And now society tells you, you really shouldn't do anything that anybody else tells you to do. You should only do that which you decide uh, to do. You, you see the, the paradigm shift. He says that there used to be just a few heretics. And now Peter Berger argues, we're all supposed to be heretics. We're all supposed to be our own highest authority to patch together meaning in life for ourselves. No talk of servant. No talk of, of submission. No talk of having a lord uh, or a master. Abraham Kuyper, another theologian, says, but wait a minute. He, he's this Dutch theologian who was prime minister of Netherlands. And he says, let me ask you a question about your religion. Do you have religion for your sake or for God's sake? Is it to serve yourself or is it to serve God? He says there are all kinds of pagan spiritualities running around there, and including inside of Christendom, masquerading as Christian theology, that are really just spiritualities that are in our service. And when times are tough, when we're in crisis, we become very religious in that sense. We rub the rabbit's foot, um, and we hope that our religious observance will do some good for ourselves to improve ourselves. Well, Kuiper says, but, but God calls us not into his serving us, but our serving him. We're to be his servant, and, and, and that religion is enduring. Religion in which we put God above ourselves is religion that that is useful to us, both in the hard times and in the prosperous times. So we're a, a servant. It describes a relationship that Paul has with Jesus Christ. It's interesting that word servant that Paul uses 
is a rowing term. And here's where I get to talk about rowing um, a little bit. This word servant is not the typical word that's used and translated servant in the New Testament. It's a compound word of, of uh, under rowing, under rowing. And it was used in ancient Greece of the triremes, these triple decked ships. And the servants would be consigned to the bottom level to be the horsepower of the whole thing, rowing in the darkness, in the humidity, uh, propelling the ship forward. Those were the servants. Paul says, I want to be known that way. I want you to think of me as a servant of Jesus Christ. He's my Lord, and I'm his uh, servant. And this word uh, gets picked up by the Second Helvetic Confession. During the Reformation, uh, these guys are always writing confessions. And in Switzerland, uh, they write a great confession called the Second Helvetic Confession. And they use this word, coxswain. And I want to read this paragraph to you. It says, now the apostle, and they're referring to Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.1, now, the apostle calls those who serve, that's us, uh, huperitas, that's the word for under rower, rowers who have their eyes fixed on the coxswain. And, and so people who do not live for themselves or according to their own will, but for others, uh, namely their masters, upon whose command they altogether depend. For in all his duties, or hers, every minister of the church is commanded to carry out only what he has received in communication from his Lord. Not to indulge his or her own free choice. Uh, and in this case, it is expressly declared who is Lord, namely Christ. He's our coxswain. Th that's what they're saying in Switzerland. He is our coxswain. Now, what is a coxswain? The 17th century, when that creed is written, they don't have modern-day rowing. That was invented later on the River Thames uh, in England. And, uh, but they did have coxswains. You see, a coxswain was a person who would take command of a small tender. Big ship has a little ship on top of it because the big ship can't get all the way into land. So they would drop the little ship uh, over the edge. And then the coxswain would command the rowers, coordinate their efforts, and navigate the ship to shore. Now, if you've ever... Uh, seen a crew race or seen pictures of rowing or just looked out at Lake Washington, you might next uh, uh, Saturdays, we have opening day, you'll see from a distance a really serene, peaceful, elegant kind of a dance. That's what rowing looks like from a distance. But if you were to sit in the coxswain's seat, uh, you, what you see at the starting line begins with total silence. It's a, it's a very intense moment as everybody listens for the starting command. Arise and go is what the Lord says to, to, to Jonah. Translation here in verse 2 doesn't uh, show it as well. Arise and go. But it's like the call to jump into the race. And that's the same thing that the coxswain will bark out stroke after stroke as they take uh, a couple half strokes, three quarter strokes, and then lengthen out to full strokes. And ahead they go. Now you've got, I was, someone was telling me recently that the crew coaches at the University of Washington, this is about 30, 40 years ago, used to stand outside the gymnasium at about the same time that the football team was making their cuts. And the coach and his assistant had a string that they would stretch out across the steps going down and uh, at six foot three inches. If you had to duck, they wanted to talk to you, right? <laughs> Rowers are big people. We may not be the smartest people, but we are some of the biggest people. And, and, uh, and they usually weigh around 200 pounds. So you've got eight rowers, 200 plus pounds. You've got almost a ton of weight on a boat that's as stable as a bottle in the water, 60 feet long. 
And all of that weight is bursting up and down a slide back and forth. It's exploding. And the coxswain is barking out the rhythm, the timing, 42 strokes a minute, 44 strokes a minute, settle, 16 strokes a minute as that pace slows down and they settle in and then back up 10 strokes. And it, it, but it looks so peaceful. But it's all about the coordination of hearing the coxswain's voice. Now, we may say, I don't want to be a servant. I don't want anyone to give me any commands. But consider the benefits. Uh, rowing is the only sport I know in which uh, you've got elite athletes who are facing backwards. <laughs> you know, we're not even trusted to do anything with direction. We, we just don't know. We, don't, we can't even see. The coxswain is the only person. I, I remember one time we crossed the path of a barge. The coxswain even hadn't seen it until it was almost too late. It was carrying logs down the river. And it's a starboard, hard, all full power. And we just cleared the way. See, this, this, the coxswain has perspective. And God, likewise, has perspective. We see a lot of creation theology in the book of Jonah. And we see that God is master of all of creation, of all of history. I mean, he's got a fish, a great fish, at his beck and call in the Mediterranean. right? And, and he calls forth plants. And whatever God seems to want to happen, happens in the book of Jonah. He sees the future. And wouldn't you want someone to give you directions in life who sees the future, who sees your future and knows how to invest you most effectively in that outcome? I think so. The other thing that we see is not that just the coxswain has perspective, but the coxswain has heart. A good coxswain is all in the race. Because she knows that she doesn't win the race unless the oars people win the race. You might say, oh, I don't know if I trust her. How could you not trust a motivated coxswain? Think of God as our coxswain. Think of Jesus Christ as our coxswain. I mean, in this book, it will end with the Lord interviewing Jonah, saying, Jonah, should I not care about the people of Nineveh? Young and old. Jonah, should I not care about the animals of Nineveh, he says. And even the plants, Jonah. That's his heart. We see his heart on the cross of Jesus Christ as he hangs there. How could you just trust someone who gives their life for you? This is our master. This is our coxswain. He wants our best. He has already invested all of himself in your best and our best future together. So when Jonah hears the word of the Lord, and this text tells us in verse 2, uh, go to Nineveh and cry out. Jonah has no good reason to go the other direction. I mean, Nineveh is up here in Iraq, as I tell you. Jonah's in Israel, sent to out of the country, which is very unusual, to Assyria. And um, he goes the exact opposite direction. Tarshish, we don't really know where it is. It may just mean the open water. But I think most likely it references a place where the Phoenicians did trade on the Iberian Peninsula where modern-day Spain is as far away as he can go. And he flees from the presence of the Lord. Notice what Jonah gives up to avoid the call of God. He gives up not just the call, but God himself. i got to get out of the presence of the Lord. And even he gives up himself. One rabbi says Jonah is fleeing not from God, but from himself. Because you and I are made for a purpose. And that gets to the second thing that, that the Apostle Paul wanted to be known by. He says, may people consider us servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. That's a purpose. We, we are designed to live with purpose. 
We are. Soren Kierkegaard poured into his journal honest words. He says, the thing is to understand myself, to see what God really wants me to do. The thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. You and I are made not just to be productive, not just to perpetuate our species. You and I are made for a purpose. We're stewards of a great mystery in life. I enjoyed reading the story of Francis Collins. You know, Francis Collins was uh, this motorcycle riding scientist who was the head of the Human Genome Project. And uh, great guy. And he finds his faith developing as he digs deeper into the mysteries of science. And he goes on this trip. He's in uh, Nigeria, Francis Collins, uh, as a physician in a very small, uh, ill-equipped hospital. And in comes a village farmer. And when Collins checks his vital signs, every time he inhales, his pulse stops. He begins to put two and two together. He has tuberculosis, and he's got a condition in which there is fluid surrounding his heart, impressing it. And so every time his lungs fill, it stops the beating of his heart. Now, Collins knows this is a treatable condition if you're in a Western well-equipped hospital. You'd use an ultrasound and a needle, and you would put it in, careful not to hit the heart, and you would draw that fluid off and then address the tuberculosis. But having no such equipment, Collins explains the situation to this farmer who says, do whatever you can. So Collins takes a needle, a syringe, without any other instrument, and pushes it into his chest and knows if he goes a millimeter too far, he will take this man's life. He pulls out the plunger and watches with dread, reddish fluid coming out and think, oh, I've gone too far. But it turns out he hasn't. It's just a mixture of fluid and blood. Fills a pint, pulls it out, and instantly the man smiles. He can breathe. His pulse is restored. Uh, But later on that day, Collins realizes he hasn't addressed the underlying condition and that whatever caused this uh, problem is going to return. And it leaves Collins with a sense of hopelessness. With those discouraging thoughts in my head, he writes, I approached his bedside the next morning, finding him reading his Bible. He looked at me quizzically and asked whether I had worked at the hospital for a long time. I admitted that I was new, feeling somewhat irritated and embarrassed that it had been so easy for him to figure that out. But then this young Nigerian farmer, just about as different from me in culture, experience, and ancestry as any two human beings could be, spoke the words that will forever be emblazoned in my mind. That's what the farmer said. I get the sense you are wondering why you came here. The purpose. I have an answer for you. You came here for one reason. You came here for me. Collins writes, I was stunned, stunned that he could see so clearly into my heart, but even more stunned at the words he was speaking. I had plunged a needle close to his heart. He had directly impaled mine. With a few simple words, he had put my grandiose dreams of being the great white doctor, healing the African millions to shame. He was right. We are each called to reach out to others. On rare occasions, that can happen on a grand scale. But most of the time, it happens in simple acts of kindness of one person to another. Those are the events that really matter. The tears of relief that blurred my vision as I digested his words stem from indescribable reassurance, 
reassurance that there is in that strange place for just that one moment, I was in harmony with God's will, bonded together with this young man in a most unlikely but marvelous way. I want people to see me as a steward of the mysteries of God. When Paul used that word uh, mysteries, he didn't mean stuff that we can't figure out. What he meant is something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. What is that? The good news of Jesus Christ. It's a second banner that we have here. He is risen. I mean, that's the mystery uh, to which, uh, of which we are stewards. Paul says when he writes Romans, just like the beginning of Jonah, Paul begins with his sense of call to the Christians in Rome. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the good news of God. That's what he comes bringing, friends, and that's what you and I are called by our coxswain to steward and to carry into life as well. Well, how, how can you be called that way? You go, yeah, Moses heard a voice and there was a burning bush. I assume ministers hear stuff like that. Not so much. <laughs> you know, I've never, heard a, I've never heard an audible voice that wasn't named Ann Hinman, my wife. Uh, as close <laughs> as I get to hearing the voice of God. But... We know we are called as stewards of Jesus Christ's resurrection when we come to faith in that resurrection. See, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. That's how he became Paul. He was on the road to Damascus. There was a bright flash of light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, he was called as Paul now to be a steward of that experience because I have come to faith in the risen Jesus Christ. Now I have a new way to live. I don't believe that the tragedies of the world get the last word. I don't believe that the hopelessness of people who live even in wicked places like Nineveh is the end of the story. Jonah was called to believe that he could carry good news to Nineveh. In fact, we're going to find out later in the story that was exactly what troubled him. He knew that God wanted him to be a steward of grace in the world, and he was not up to the task. The second way, if the first way we discern our call is in the resurrection, the second way is more particular and I think more, um, maybe more helpful to some of us. And that is by understanding who you are, who, whom God has made you to be. He's given each of us a spiritual gift. That's what Peter says. Same language. Like good stewards, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. See, he's saying each of us have been given a, a gift. And that word gift is related to the word for grace. It's a way of, of extending the grace of the risen Jesus Christ in the world. A little uh, parable by a guy named Bruce Bugby. It says, once upon a time, right after creation, all the animals formed a school. They established a well-rounded curriculum of swimming, running, climbing, and flying. All the animals were required to take all the courses. The duck excelled at swimming. In fact, he was better than the instructor, but he only made passing grades in climbing and was very poor in running. He was so slow, he had to stay after school to practice running. This caused his webbed feet to become so badly worn, he became only average in swimming. But average was quite acceptable, so no one ever worried about it except the duck. The rabbit was uh, top of her class at running. But after a while, she developed a twitch in her leg and from all the, from all the time she spent in the water trying to improve her swimming. Squirrel was a peak performer in climbing, but was constantly frustrated in flying class. 
His body became so worn from all the hard landings he did, uh, he did not do too well in climbing and ended up being pretty poor in running also. The eagle was a continual problem student. She was severely disciplined for being a non-conformist. In climbing class, she would always beat everyone up to the top of the tree, but insisted on using her own way to get down. Each of the animals had a particular design. When they did what they were designed to do, they excelled. When they tried to operate outside their area of expertise, they were not nearly as effective. You've been given a spiritual gift if you believe in Jesus Christ. You will never be satisfied until you use that gift to the full. God gave it to you for a purpose. You're a steward of his good news and resurrection power, and so am I. Stewards are stewards because they are servants. And servants are servants because they have been called. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It also came to Peter and Andrew and James and John as Jesus met them along the shore of Galilee. And he said to them what he says to us, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will change the world through you. And you won't be caught in any fish's belly. No, indeed, you'll have the privilege of watching me change people's lives with that good news and that grace. There was a football game this fall. Uh, Maybe you heard about this. Rick Riley wrote an article on ESPN.com. Grapevine, Texas. Grapevine Faith versus Gainesville State School. Riley says everything about it was upside down. For instance, when Gainesville came out to take the field, the Faith fans made a 40-yard sprint line for them to run through. The other team's fans. The reason for this? Gainesville is a prison. And these kids come out, I think there were only 12 of them, that came to play this game against a fully equipped suburban school. And the coach who knew that these kids only got out to play football and they never played well because their whole season they'd lost every single game and only scored two touchdowns. Got an idea. What if I could be a steward of good news for these people? I mean, what if we could make them believe that they're as important to God as anybody else and bless them? So he sends out this email. This is the Faith School's head coach, Chris Hogan. And he, and he, he asks everybody to come, the stands, half the stand to root for the other team. So there were mothers who were crying out to the Gainesville kids, hit them, defense, kill them. <laughs> the Gainesville kids say, whenever I play football, I see fear in the other side's teams. Eyes. And now I was hearing something very different. Faith was 7-2 going into the game. Gainesville was 0-8, two touchdowns all year. Faith has 70 kids, 11 coaches, the latest equipment, and involved parents. Gainesville has a lot of kids with convictions for drugs, assault, and robbery, many of whose families had disowned them wearing 7-year-old shoulder pads and ancient helmets. So Hogan has this idea. What if half our fans for one night only cheered for the other team? He sent out an email asking the faithful to do just that. Here's the message I want you to send, Hogan wrote. You are just as valuable as any other person on the planet. 
Some of the people were naturally confused. One faith player walked into Hogan's office and asked, Coach, why are we doing this? And Hogan said, imagine if you didn't have a home life. Imagine if everybody had pretty much given up on you. Now imagine what it would mean for hundreds of people to suddenly believe in you. As Gainesville took the field, there were, they had cheerleaders cheering for them on their side. Well, Gainesville didn't actually win the game, but they did score two touchdowns in that one game, which probably had to do with some coaching decisions that the faith coach uh, made. But after the game, both teams gathered in the middle of the field to pray. And that's when Isaiah, one of the Gainesville uh, prisoners, surprised everybody by asking to lead. We had no idea what this kid was going to say, remembers Coach Hogan. But Isaiah said this, Lord, I don't know how this happened. So I don't know how to say thank you. But I never would have known there were so many people in the world that cared about us. And it was a good thing everybody's heads were bowed because they might have seen Hogan wiping away tears. As the tornadoes walked back to their bus under guard, they each were handed a bag for the ride home. A burger, some fries, a soda, some candy, a Bible, and an encouragement letter from a faith player. The Gainesville coach saw Hogan, grabbed him hard by the shoulders and said, You'll never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You'll never, ever know. And as the bus pulled away, all the Gainesville players crammed to one side and pressed their hands to the window, staring at these people they'd never met before, watching their waves and smiles disappearing into the night. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to us. We're called to be servants. We're called to be stewards of the good news and hold it out for the world. To live in just such a crazy way to believe that Jesus, the risen one, is changing everything. I don't know about you, but I know it's hard to get to church every Sunday or maybe to a small group midweek. But I've asked myself, what kind of church would make it worthwhile? What kind of a church would I want to be a part of? I think it's a church that worships Jesus Christ with authenticity and enthusiasm. I think it's a church that welcomes people in with a kind of a, uh, unexplainable charity and love and, and embrace. A place where I can make new friends, be challenged and grow in my faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's a church that knows it's called and gifted to make a difference in the world. In Seattle. And it's committed to doing it. That's what this church is all about. That's why I'm here. And I have a sense of being called here. But friends, each and every one of you in this room has a call as well. You're here because you are also called by Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be called. It's another thing to grow into that call. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks as we look at the book of Jonah. How do we grow into that call? It's only as much as each one of us realizes, every single one of us has been handed an oar. And our boat will move at the coxswain's command only if every single one of us puts our oar in the water. Let's pray. Jesus, you are risen and we confess that you are Lord. So far from degrading us, it is actually our greatest nobility that we might sit here and be named your servants. It thrills our heart no more than any other possibility 
that we could be resurrection people, carrying your grace into the world with a special function that each one of us has been given. Uh, Grant that we might discover what that is and how to use it at this time and in this place. For Jesus' sake, amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.